When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing in Rupert Court, W1, one street north of the death of Ken Snakehips Johnson, one street northeast of the club where the first date killer met his date, and just a few feet from the wannabe gangsters who acted like bellends. Coming soon to Murder Mile, the YouTube channel. Ooh. Nestled between the ornate gates to Chinatown, Rupert Court is a narrow alley connecting Rupert Street and Wardour Street. At roughly six feet wide, a hundred feet long and three stories high, every inch of space has a shop squeezed in. Whether a Malaysian cafe, a Thai restaurant, a decent pub, a branded pizzeria, and at eight Rupert Court, is Steppin, a one-stop shop for your relaxation and well-being needs. Of course, being a respectable establishment providing massage in this area, you half expect to see a pasty wheezing pervert with a shuffling fist, hairy palms and bulging pants being politely ejected with a firm boot, as the only happy finish he'll receive here is in his soul. But that mistake is easy to make. Back in the 1960s, Rupert Court was full of mucky bookshops and sleazy porn palaces. At number eight stood the imaginatively titled Rupert Court Club, a cheesy clip joint where gaggles of drunk and horny men, desperate to see a bit of boob, pay over the odds to be fooled by the oldest trick in the book. One such man was Edward Valstrom Lewis, an Australian on a night out with his pals. Expecting nookie, but receiving nout, whereas most men would pay up and walk out rather than suffer the shame of calling the cops. Having been denied a little kiss-kiss, he would deliver some bang-bang. My name is Michael, I'm your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 164, Kiss Kiss, Bang Bang. The fascinating thing about murder is the tipping point. 
everybody has a tipping point. That moment in life when a perfectly rational person is pushed beyond the limits of what they deem acceptable. For some, it can be the preservation of life. But for others, it can be something as simple as pride. Edward Robert Wallström Lewis, known as Ted, was born on the 5th of October 1941 in Shanghai, China. Raised two years into the Second World War and a full four years into the conflict between China and Japan. Although Ted was still only a baby, his earliest memories were of a life behind prison bars. In 1943, with Shanghai occupied by Japanese forces, any Western civilian living on occupied land was interred in a concentration camp. Being Australian, the Wallström Lewis family were rounded up with nothing but the clothes on their backs and separated. So his mother had to take care of her son alone. From the age of two, Ted spent three years half-starved and ragged, as a prisoner of war in a cramped camp riddled with disease, filth and squalor. In 1946, with the war finally over, the family were reunited and they returned to the safety of their home in Sydney, Australia. Being free, life should have got better. But for Ted, it would only get worse. In 1949, his father died of a heart attack, leaving Ted and his three younger sisters without a dad to try and regain a sense of stability for the family, his mother remarried. But when she fell ill, aged eight, Ted was put in a children's home for 18 months. With an erratic education, he attended several schools in Sydney and Wollongong, where he was described as an average student who had issues with authority figures and often played truant. Ted would state that he had a good childhood. But with so much turmoil and upset, although everyone agreed that he was a good bloke, he was blessed with a strong sense of pride, but cursed with a short fuse. So whenever he felt cheated, he was easily stung. As a young lad, he tried his best to lead a good life. In 1955, he worked as an attendant at the Ondera service station. In 1956, he spent a year as a sales assistant at Mick Simmons' sports shop. In 1957, he joined the Merchant Navy. And in 1958, he became a farm labourer in Wollongong. But frequently being out of work, by his late teens, he had turned to petty crime. Between March and June 1961, he was charged four times for 20 cases of theft, mostly stealing cars, but also an outboard motor. He was sentenced to two and a half years hard labor at Parramatta Prison, plus 10 months for each charge which he served concurrently. 
in July 1963, having been released on bail, he fled to Melbourne and in his own words, lived off the proceeds of crime. That month, he was arrested and charged with five counts of shop-breaking, stealing and sentenced to five years. While held at McLeod Prison on French Island, he was further convicted of absconding legal custody and willful damage, having attempted a prison break and was given a further nine months inside. He had no convictions for drunkenness, firearms or assault. The only unusual blip in his criminal record, which hints at the crime which was later to come, was his first offence. As in May 1960, he was sentenced to six days hard labour for the unusually vague crime of indecent behaviour. On the 12th of August 1966, Ted was paroled. Seeking a fresh start, not just from his life of crime, but also from his country. He cleaned up his act. He moved in with his grandmother. He got a job as a fisherman. And through honest toil and sweat, he saved up his money so he could start a new life in England. On the 26th of July 1967, Ted arrived in London. In the interim, he stayed at a friend's flat at 87 Ridgemount Gardens in Bloomsbury. He started working as a van driver for a company called Instant Van, earning a regular £14 a week. And as a 26-year-old singleton, he was hoping to find himself a nice lady. Three weeks in, Ted was still finding his feet. But so far, his new life was going well. By all accounts, Saturday the 19th of August 1967 was just an ordinary day. At 5pm, having finished his shift, Ted parked up the White Ford Transit in the garage of Nine Bristol Mews, just north of Paddington Station. Having been paid, he had already started saving to rent his own place as he didn't want to keep kipping on his mate's spare bed forever. But as this was Saturday night, he felt he deserved a little blowout. At 6pm, Ted, Ken Smith, who was an old pal, and Martin Penny, who owned the flat, headed out for a night on the tiles in Martin's Black, Armstrong Sidley. They headed to a pub in Bethnal Green and stayed there for roughly 30 minutes. There was no issues, no arguments, and no moments of conflict. At 9pm, they arrived at a pub called the Cockney Pride, just off Piccadilly Circus. They had a few beers, a few laughs, and there was nothing to suggest that the night was about to turn sour. At 10pm, Ted said that he wanted to dance. dance. So they left and headed into Soho. Passing the dark-lit sleaze and neon-flashing signs of a nearby alley, 
at 33 Wardle Street, they tried to get in to the Whiskey A Go Go, an infamous music venue which that year alone had hosted such greats as the Drifters, Benny King, and Stevie Wonder. But being full, they had to look elsewhere. The streets were busy, if a little aggressive, as the hot night had made the drunks jittery. Beside the arched entrance to Rupert Court, Ted saw a Chinese guy agitatedly barking in broken English to two bobbies about how he'd been robbed by a woman. Seeing this, the lads tittered, knowing he probably wasn't the first man she had fleeced, and he certainly wouldn't be the last. For about 15 minutes, the lads tried a few other venues, but got no joy. It was then that Ted changed his mind. He still wanted to dance, but he wanted a different kind of dance. Being single, and if he was honest, a little lonely, as a stranger in a new country, he couldn't be asked with the hassle of chatting up a girl and buying her a drink, in the remote hope of getting a quick kiss and a fondle, if he was lucky. What he needed was a place where some sexy time with a pretty lady was a dead cert. As feeling a little bit horny, he had a solid gold boner in his pocket, which he didn't want to waste on a wank. At 11.30pm, as his pals waited outside, Ted entered Rupert Court. This thin, dark alley, four times taller than it is wide, was bathed in a sickly neon glow which pulsed like hot blood into a throbbing cock. As the sinister shadows foretold of both terror and thrills within. With signs flickering in single-syllable words, like girls and nude. As clearly long words are impossible to read when you've got a hard on, in this seedy alley, there was no denying what was for sale. Sex. Along both sides of the alley were several hostess clubs, many of which offered a lap dance, a striptease, the purchase of porn, and even a peep show. The choice was his and either of which might have left him a little lighter in the pants, but not heading to prison. To his left was the Rupert Court Club at 8 Rupert Court. Not that he would have known this, as with no sign outside, the windows were covered up and the sills were painted in deep reds and fleshy whites. But outside stood a slim, attractive brunette whose job it was to lure the young men in. The name of this raven-haired temptress was Maureen. Maureen Chapman. And with a few keenly chosen words, 
this sultry siphon said the words which Ted and his balls wanted to hear. Sexily, Maureen cooed, Are you looking for a girl? Playing it cool, Ted shrugged, Yeah, it depends. As if he was the one chatting her up. So having said, Come in, I'll talk to you. And with that, the deal was done. At any point, he could have changed his mind. But part of the con is to make the punter feel bad about backing out or rejecting the lady. So the second he stepped foot beyond the tall dark screen which shielded the world from its raw sexiness, he was in. This was the club. And it wasn't much. It consisted of a single room, 10 feet wide by 15 feet long, being no bigger than a caravan. With a few red lights, as much to bathe the peeling wallpaper in an unsubtle sexy vibe as to disguise the stains, Ted was sat in one of several mismatched chairs. One which looked as if it was once part of a patio set, one borrowed from a granny flat, and one had blatantly been ripped out of a crashed Ford Zephyr. As to the left, a tacky red velvet curtain sectioned off a tiny bar, which was littered with watered-down drinks. Ted could have said, Fuck this for a dingo's dinky, and fled. But he didn't. Being seated, And with his bill racking up, this is where their statements deviate. Maureen would state, I said to him, if you would like company, it's £4 to sit and talk for a bit, or £8 for as long as you like. Although what he heard her say was, She asked me, would I like to have sex with her? I said, yeah. She said, it's £4 for a short time. An eight pound for all nine. In a quick decision, made using his other brain, more than half of his week's wage was blown. And as he sat there grinning, he hoped that soon he would be too. With his cash, Maureen popped behind the curtain and handed it to her boss. Having got Ted to hand over another two pound, for whatever sundry bullshit they said was essential. For 15 minutes, they sat side by side, chatting politely, with no touching, no kissing, and certainly no sex. The con was simple. The hostess never mentioned sex, but the man assumes he is getting some. When he realizes he's been conned, he has three options. Leave, having learned his lesson. Get rough, only to be turfed out. Or call the police, except with no evidence, it would be his word against theirs. With his mate still waiting outside, Ted was already becoming impatient when a familiar face walked in. 
with the two bobbies unable to help. The agitated Chinese guy stormed in, barking in broken English that he wanted his money back. Ted would later state, I knew then that I'd been taken for a fool. Ted demanded his money back. But Maureen explained, I can't get it. It's booked in and we're not allowed to refund it. Ted insisted, his face turning puce as his temper grew foul. This was his money. He had earned it. And although he had made the mistake, he hated being cheated. Seeing his mood grow black, to pacify him, as her boss had vanished, Maureen agreed to meet Ted in about 20 minutes for a coffee at the Golden Egg on Oxford Street. Unsure if he'd get his money back, or even his money's worth, calling her bluff, he threatened her. If you don't turn up, I'll come back. And with that, Ted walked out. With their fun night out, well and truly buggered, Martin drove them back to 87 Ridgemount Gardens. They climbed the stairs to the flat, and by the stroke of midnight, the boys were getting ready for bed. Ted could have gone to sleep, he could have let it go, or he could have just brushed it off as a silly mistake. But he couldn't. At 12.30am, Ted sat waiting outside of the Golden Egg. It's drunken punters stumbling into this late-night cafe to feed on a feast of foods, all of which were served with chips. But none of them were Maureen. 20 minutes later, having dumped the car, Ted got out. Still seething, he didn't lock it and he didn't think. As fueled by raw emotions, he stormed down Rupert Court. His walk quick and his eyes fixed. As across his heaving chest, he clutched a blue and white bag emblazoned with the Pan Am logo. The alley was just as he had left it an hour before. The nauseating hum of neon, the crunch of broken beer bottles, and the stale stench of warm piss. As outside, two guys argued with a girl over money. Ted would later state, I pushed past her, and I said, I want to see the other one. Barging her aside, she grabbed his sleeve and asked him to leave, yelling, Get out, or I'll call the police. But Ted was tired of asking nicely, he meant business. As from his shoulder bag, he pulled out a little gift from the land of Oz. Through the gloom, the girl screamed, Help! Call the police! As in his tightened fist, he held a 12-bore sawn-off shotgun. The alley erupted into blind panic as with a swift bolt action, he loaded a cartridge of number seven shot into the barrel and stormed into the dingy 
darklit club. Inside, although one punter had fled, several sat in the battered car seats, too terrified to move. Hearing the commotion, as Maureen came from behind the tacky velvet curtain, Ted stuck the barrel of the shotgun in her startled face. I want my money. With eyes wide and teeth bared, there was no negotiation to be had. I want my fucking money. As she went into the backroom bar, Ted followed, slightly obscured by the tacky velvet curtain with one eye always on the hostess and the other on the punters. Outside, the panic had reached fever pitch as excitable crowds jostled for a peek. With the bar only as big as a bank of urinals, she only had to count out 10 quid, but the longer this took, the more wound up Ted got. You're stalling, hurry up. And as he focused on Maureen, he wasn't focused on the door. Roy Martinson had been standing outside of the Two Decks Club with his pal, Sammy the Turk, when he heard a hostess hysterically screaming, Some man's trying to shoot my friend! And he went in to help. Only half believing her story, as Roy sauntered into the club, seeing only a flank of frozen men sitting silently on threadbare seats. Roy quizzed them with a knowing smirk. All right then, who's got the gun? From beyond the curtain, the angry Aussie drawled, I have, as he poked the shotgun's muzzle into Roy's chest. Stuck in a standoff, the Aussie glared the local lad down, But Roy wasn't intimidated. As if to challenge him, Ted said, Do you want it? At this point, their statements deviate. I took that to mean did I want the gun, so I reached out for it. Ted would claim, He had a look of surprise on his face, and he grabbed for the gun. He went round in an arc as we twisted. Only Maureen would later clarify, There was no struggle, no fight. Either way, from just two feet apart, the shotgun went off. With a flash of yellow, as a shockwave echoed the tiny room, Roy was blasted in the stomach. Doubling over, as his shirt pulled with a flowing crimson, he stumbled out of the club and collapsed in the alley. Snatching the ten quid from Maureen's trembling hand, Ted fled from the club. With his getaway car parked barely 50 feet to the left, and that side of this narrow alley, blocked by a group of panicked people, all tending to a bloodied Roy. Turning right, Ted ran into Wardour Street, followed by a small but furious crowd. 
As I reached the footpath, somebody hit me over the head with a bottle. Having heard the shot, Dinos Myromatis, a kitchen porter, and Petro Neofitu, a waiter, chased after Ted. As blood streamed from his head wound, as all three hurtled up Gerard Street. Three times, Ted waved the shotgun at the two men, hoping to scare them. But they kept chasing him, hurling at him whatever they could find, whether bottles, bricks or traffic cones. Passing Macclesfield Street, having grabbed a broom handle, Dinos would state, I tried to hit him with it, and we came face to face. I was about six feet away when he pulled out the gun and shot me. As hot balls of speeding lead blasted into his face, neck and chest. As he slumped down onto the cobbled street. So indiscriminate was the shotgun's blast that a single shot zipped 200 feet down Gerard Street and outside of Rupert Court it hit Barry Glatz in the neck as the innocent lad stood there chatting to a pal. Petro gave chase from a cautious distance but at the corner of Shasby Avenue he lost sight of Ted. With his victims rushed to Charing Cross Hospital, Barry had a single pellet removed from his neck and he only needed two stitches. Dinos's blast from six feet away left him only with superficial wounds, although he would remain partially sighted in his left eye. And miraculously, although he was on the critical list and underwent an emergency operation to his stomach, Roy was discharged after six weeks. In the following days, Ted laid low, and although the incident was in the papers, no one knew his name. Ten days later, finding a shotgun cartridge under his bed, Brian MacDonald, a roommate of Ted's pal Ken Smith, realized the connection to Ted, who was seen bleeding and had fled, and he called the police. At 7.45pm on the 3rd of November 1967, Ted was arrested as he pulled the white transit van into the garage at 9 Bristol Mews. Technically, he was still on the run, but needing money, he was still driving the van. Taken to West End Central Police Station, Ted confessed to the shooting. They robbed me of money, and I lost my temper. But when Detective Sergeant Hopkins asked, So why did you cut down the shotgun's barrel with a saw? Ted's reply was as Aussie as it gets. I was going to use it for shark fishing. Only I didn't realise that, in this place... There were no bloody shacks. The trial was held at the Old Bailey on the 19th and 20th of February 1968. He was found guilty of wounding and possessing a firearm, but on the charges of grievous bodily harm and shooting with intent to murder, 
he was found not guilty. Ted was sentenced to a total of 10 years in prison. After his release, Ted moved back to Australia and settled in Riverwood in Sydney, where he married, he had several children and grandchildren, and he recently passed away in July 2020, aged 78. For the sake of £10, a little kiss-kiss and a flash of bang-bang, three lives were ruined and ten years of his life were lost. It may seem ridiculous, but then again, everybody has a tipping point. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good, 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 good vibrations. Ba 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 ba. Job done. Job done. Oh, oh. I think it's essential to have a little yawn after Murder Mile. Oh dear, there we go. That's my yawn. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Extra Mile. How are we all? For new people, as always, this is the unscripted, unedited bit. Uh, we uh, will have a little bit of chat. We'll do some quiz questions. I'll fill you in on some details towards do with the case, and then we'll shut off. You can switch off now if you want to. If this is not your kind of thing, that's not a problem at all. Um, again, this isn't a morning recording. This isn't a, a lunchtime recording. It's barely two o'clock, and I've finished already. Whoa, powering through today. Well done, Michael. Well done. Even though I started... Uh, writing this yesterday with a massive hangover i powered through it with a hangover well done michael but that was my little treat i'm still on my diet still losing weight i can now see my feet which is a miracle haven't had chocolate or cake or biscuits or anything nice really for oh god it's about 10 days now 
It's amazing how different it can make when you're not eating wheat. Wheat really bloats you up. It really does. And all that. And it's amazing how much you eat when you don't realise how much you are eating. It's a lot. So, uh, yeah, all good. All good. Uh, what else is going on? Keeping busy here. Uh, I'm working on a new exciting project with two other podcasters who two other well-known podcasters. More info coming soon. I can't tell you more. Um, next week I'm going in to do a little bit of a recording for uh, a very well-known podcast. I can't say any more about this. But uh, they've called me in as a consultant on it. Oh, very exciting. I was a big fan of their original series. And they're, they're doing a new series. And they were like, we have to call you in. Uh, so, uh, yeah, very exciting. Very exciting. Uh, we will see how next week goes. And, uh, yeah, all good. Um, a thank you to new patron subscribers. We have uh, Emmett Cullen. Uh, Hannah Olsen. I hope that's how I pronounced it. H-A-N-N-E. Hanny. Hannah. Hannah. I, I, online it says Hannah. So I hope I've got that right. Hannah. Uh, Holly Ford. I got that right. Well done me. And Vilma Lay. I got that. I think I got that right as well. Although, who knows? Half the time, half the time you try and then <laughs> people's names are different, aren't they? No one ever gets my name right, ever. In fact, recently, someone did get it right. Oh, it was when I was doing recording for uh, an American podcast. Uh, I can't remember what the, the show was. Uh, True Crime Binge, I think it's called. And the host got it exactly right. And I was like, I was shocked. Whereas when I was getting my COVID booster jab, I was in like a central London hospital uh, and surrounded by people from all around the world, different nationalities. And there was a, a skinny white guy there, British, who was reading out everyone's names. And he was struggling with absolutely every name going... Fido, but you could see him phonetically trying to work it out and I thought well when it comes to my name it'll be fine no he balls it up he balls it up two of the most popular Scots Irish surnames and he cocked it up I'm amazed he even got Michael right Belland anyway there we go but I'm going to do some quiz questions uh, as always I'll probably cock some of these up or I'll give away the answers halfway through that's not really a problem is it it's not no major biggie I think there's bigger problems in the world and if you're upset about that get a life fuck's sake <laughs> uh, okay question number one what are the two streets which Rupert Court links question two what's the name of the reflexology shop at 8 Rupert Court called today that was almost a clear sentence. We've got burpees. I just said fish sticks and quavers. Uh, they're, they're healthy to eat, so that's good. Question three. What was Ted's middle name? Question four. What was Maureen's, what was Maureen's surname? Question five. What was the name of the pub off Piccadilly Circus that the boys visited first? Question six. What was the name of the nightclub they tried and failed to get into? Question seven. What job did Ted do to help him save money to come to England? Question eight. What city was Ted born in? Question nine. What was the name of the Van Hire company he worked for? And question ten. Uh, how many bottles of beer did he drink that night? There we go. All all exciting questions. There we go. Oh. So let's dive into some extra stuff. Stuff that uh, wouldn't have made it into the episode. Um, one thing that I was desperate to get in, which I found in the archive file, which I was desperate to use, uh, was a, it was a hand-signed, handwritten, hand-signed document from 
all the girls who worked in the club and some of the 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 men who were in there as well. So there's a total of 14, it was there. Uh, it's signed by all the hostesses on duty that night and basically a handwritten statement, Exhibit 15, that said, This is a club and all the girls who are working here do so purely as hostesses and not underlined prostitutes. Any money paid is for the girls' company on these premises, nothing more. No girls are allowed to leave the club with any customers under any circumstances. The customers have only the girls' company and nothing else here. That went into court. That was to basically say he thought he was getting sex, but there is no sex, it's just chat, which is kind of weird when it's... The thing is, £4 to chat to me for a bit and then £8 for the whole night, but why would you want to talk to someone for a whole night? A bit boring, really. Uh, the shotgun that he had uh, was uh, a Stevens 12 bore shotgun with a uh, number four lead shot. It was bolt action. It was fairly good condition, relatively new. Barrel was about six and a half inches long. Uh, when they tested it in court, he obviously went to the, the ballistics expert and he said uh, the trigger required uh, 101 pounds in order to pull the trigger. He said it was a uh, because it's a heavy duty weapon it's designed for kind of hunting and things like that it has to have be quite a heavy trigger uh so they tested it uh they tested to see whether it had actually gone off whether it had accidentally discharged and they said it was highly unlikely uh it was definitely loaded uh but it, it didn't go off accidentally uh the golden egg where they uh maureen and uh what's his name ted I, I've written here E-R-W-L. That's what my notes was Earl because uh, it's initials. That's before that I realised that they were calling him Ted. So everywhere on my sheet I've written Earl, Ted. Uh, yeah, no, they went to the Golden Egg. The Golden Egg was a chain of restaurants uh, around the 1960s, 70s. Um, I always thought it was a kind of a Chinese restaurant thing, but it's not. It's kind of a British food. All kind of late night into the early mornings, pretty much everything has kind of like, it's with chips. Yeah, that's what you want. I could just do with a big fry up right now. That'd be lovely. Um, what else have we got in this episode? Let's do some of the statements that people say. Obviously, I can't use all the statements. Uh, when they were going into the club, uh, Ted said, so I went into the club. I'm not going to do the voice. I went into the club. There were two fellows outside arguing with a girl. I pushed past her and I said, I want to see the other girl there. She said, get out or call the police. I pulled out the gun from the bag. I saw the girl and I said, I want the money. She said, I'll get it. Uh, she walked into the back room and I followed her. I don't think the money was in the back room. I think they had to wait for it to come up from downstairs or something. As I was waiting for the money, I was standing just inside the curtains. Maureen would state, I was just walking from out behind the curtain into the main part of the club. He was carrying a blue bag, which is Exhibit 16, his uh, Pan Am bag. Uh, he came after me and pulled out the shotgun, Exhibit 12. Uh, he held the gun up and asked for his money back. I told him to calm down and said I would get his money. He said... Something like, you're stalling me. I heard one of the girls run out and something like, someone's got a gun and other people were shouting for help and called the police. Um, Roy, Roy, Roy Samuel Martinson uh, was out with his mate, uh, Mr. Woodward, who uh, was not interviewed. They were outside the Two Decks Club in Rupert Court uh, and his mate, Sammy the Turk. We don't know much about Sammy the Turk. I'm guessing his name is Sam uh, and he's Turkish. Um, uh, Roy said, while speaking to him two doors away from the club, I had left. A girl came out screaming out the doorway, screaming police. She was hysterical. 
Uh, she said there was a chap in the club who was going to shoot one of her girlfriends. I went into the club and sent her for the police. I couldn't see anyone inside the club when I first went in and I asked who has the gun. A curtain withdrew and the gun was stuck in my chest. The lights were very dim. I said to him, that's a silly thing to do. You should put that away if I were you. Uh, he said, do you want it? And I took that to mean uh, I want the gun. I reached out and grabbed the gun and it went off. I had not touched any part of the gun or him. There was no struggle. I was about one or two feet away when the gun was fired. I was hit in the abdomen. I grabbed my stomach and went out of the club. Uh, and about 10 yards away, I collapsed. Uh, they took Roy's clothes afterwards, which showed the, the correlation between the gunshot wound and uh, uh, his injuries. Uh, what else we got? Um, Ted, obviously, uh, it's unclear whether he got the money or whether he didn't get the money. I said, I put in here that he did, but it's kind of a redundant in a way, whether he did or whether he didn't. Uh, he walked out of the club uh, as he started to reach the, the footpath, uh, as in his statement. I'll read his statement in a bit. He said he felt uh, he, he was hit over the head with a bottle. This was one. Uh, this was uh, the lads who I'll read about now. Uh, so you got Udino and Petro. They were standing outside a pizza bar on Rupert Court. Girls came out of the club running and shouting and saying that someone had got a gun. Um, Dina would say, a man who had a gun ran out of the club and started walking towards Wardour Street and I ran after him. Uh, Petro with, with, was with me. Uh, Petro and Dina are actually uh, flatmates. They live together. I think I think they live together in Tooting. Uh, uh, I was in the middle of Wardour Street. The man tried to cross the road to Gerald Street. My friend took an empty milk bottle and hit the man over the back of the head. Uh, Petro was actually, he threw the bottle, then he hid behind a car at that point. Uh, the, the, the man crossed the road uh, and started running and pulled the gun out of the bag. He was pointing the gun at my friend. I was on the other side of the road and I, uh, I picked up another empty bottle and threw it at the man. The man ran down Gerald Street. I was on the left and he was on the right. I was shouting that he had a gun. I tried to stop him. I had a broom handle in my hand. I tried to hit him with it and we came face to face and he pulled the gun and shot me. I was about six feet away. I was hit in the face and chest. I put my hands up to my face, turned away and fell down. Um, uh, they had uh, Dino's clothing, clothing were exhibits nine and ten. Uh, they... Um, they said he, he was shot from uh, just a couple of feet away. Uh, but it's still still pretty terrifying to be shot. Uh, uh, Petro uh, checked on his pal. His pal was bleeding on the floor. Uh, he tried to follow uh, Ted. But Ted kind of made it. If you go up Gerrard Street. then he, On the left you got Macclesfield Street. And then just beyond that near the kind of the uh, the, the Soho Fire Station. Which uh, if you've done the Murder Mile Walk is very near uh, Roger. I was going to say Roger McGough. What's his name? Red Max. Red Max. Near where Red, Red Max was murdered. Uh, it's just by there. That's Gerrard Place. Just literally on the left there. And that's where they lost him. Um, it kind of makes sense if you're chasing after someone with a gun and your mate's just been shot you're not really going to try that hard to kind of tra track someone down especially if you haven't got a gun yourself even if you did it's still stupid to do uh what else was there uh barry uh barry peter joseph glatz uh, of all things when when ted turned and shot at dino obviously he missed he missed petro but the shot because there's so many shots inside that uh cartridge they kind of and they shoot out and they go wide and they, they travel around i think they said with this 
this one that it, it travels like 250 feet 300 feet something like that barry glatz was basically just standing outside the alphabet club with a mate of his just chatting he said i saw demos the greek boy who i know vaguely chasing another man i got knocked into the street by the man he was chasing when he was about 15 yards away he turned round and fired at demos the next thing i knew i got hit in the neck on the side i went to hospital and a pellet was taken out of my neck um, he couldn't recognise Ted uh, in the in the lineup because he, he literally didn't look at him. He was chatting to his mate. Um, with uh, Dinos, Dinos was shot. Uh, they estimated fifteen from fifteen inches away, which ain't much. Which ain't much. Uh, so it's amazing, amazing that we don't have people who are dead with this. But who knows? Uh, uh, Dr. David uh, William John of Charing Cross Hospital, who was the casualty officer that morning, uh, from about one ten onwards, he said he received four casualties uh, with gunshot wounds. This kind of uh, weirded me out because I was like, "What the f- what the hell is he talking about?" And then I realised he'd actually <laughs> he'd actually got another person with shotgun wounds that night in the same hospital. It was just a different incident, uh, which which kind of throws everything off. Um, Roy was uh, received at one twenty a.m. He was shot shot in the upper left abdomen. Um, he was uh, his stomach was lacerated and he had to be operated on uh, operation that night. They took several pieces of cork and lead pellets, which were found in the head of his pancreas. Um, the operation was successful, but he developed pancreatitis, gas gangrene, and then finally had an abscess. Uh, but he was discharged on the thirtieth of October, nineteen sixty-seven, which is about six weeks later. Uh, he was originally critical. But he was released. Uh, but uh, even at the court trial, he still suffers discomfort, discomfort from that. Uh, uh, Dinos, absolutely lucky. Multiple superficial gunshot shot wounds to the front of his chest, shoulders, neck and face. Uh, most of them were, were skin deep. They didn't penetrate much further. Unfortunately, one of them went into his left eye. Um, at the time of trial... It, uh it remained in his eye uh, and his sight was still infected and impaired uh, and as mentioned barry glatz very luckily he had one pellet he just needed two stitches which was good didn't put this in the episode uh so immediately afterwards uh ted drives back to the flat that he's staying at uh, martin said uh, he was only away about half an hour when i saw him again he was wearing a white t-shirt and flannel trousers he was pretty exhausted i asked him what was the matter I saw that on the back of his head he had an injury and blood on the back of his t-shirt, obviously from the uh, the milk bottle. There was blood on his hands. He said that he had a crash with the car, Martin's car, and he was coming back and had banged his head on the handle of the centre post of the driver's door. He was not drunk and he was in control of himself. Uh, police would later find the car uh, elsewhere. He didn't park it up outside the house. Um, and next to the pavement, they found they found like blood, uh, uh, obviously from his head down there. Uh, the next morning, uh, so a couple of literally a couple of hours later, um, Martin was driving to Harrow, and Ted asked uh, whether he could come along with him. Uh, and he went to Harrow Station. He took the hold all with him. Uh, this seems to be where he uh, he he took the gun back uh, because the gun would later be found in the car. Uh, what else we got? What else we got? Exhibits. Uh, uh, 
it's quite nice there was, there was uh, crime scene photos in there but there was also a plan of the club so it made it, it made it a lot easier for me to be able to work this out the the crime scene photos of the club are hilarious because you can see how shitty the club is even with black and white pictures it still looks shitty uh they had um uh, other exhibits included the cartridge chase cases uh, a quantity of pellets uh the shotgun uh, there were several there was three spent cartridges and seven unspent uh obviously lots of different sets of clothing that people were wearing the visitor's book uh which ted had signed when he came in his statement uh as well as the witness statements uh the police also took possession of a hacksaw and a blade which uh, he had used to shorten the shotgun why did he need a shotgun we don't know why did he shorten the shotgun we don't know this is what makes it really weird. Uh, as mentioned at the end, Brian and Robert McDonald shared a room with Ken Smith, the Australian buddy of uh, Ted. At, um, uh, he'd been there since... Uh, when was it? Uh, yeah, he was looking under the bed for a key and then he found uh, a used cartridge case. Um, where was the other bit? Uh, basically, the uh, police found out uh where uh ted was uh 3rd of november 1967 they went to uh the place where the van was parked up he was still working there they said are you ted lewis that was the other name he went under uh with some of his arrests previously he didn't use the name valstrom he just used ted lewis uh uh they got him out of the car they uh they took him to a west end central police station uh to make inquiries having made concerned uh, an attempt at murder so it was an attempted murder at that point. Uh, what else was they got? Uh, that was it. The car was parked on Tennyson Road. Uh, I think that's I think that's N six. So it was a good couple of miles away where he'd parked up. We don't know uh, we don't know why he parked it up there, but you know, each to their own. Uh, he was shown the shotgun and the cartridges. Uh, they said, are, are these yours? He said, yes, that's the one I used that night. Uh, they said, where did you get the gun from? He said, I brought it in a shop in Paddington. Uh, was it, they said, uh, police said, was it like this when you bought it? He said, no, I had to cut it down myself. When asked why, he this is when he said, I was going to use it for shark fishing. Um, uh uh, Detective Constable Price said it would be difficult to shark fish in Britain and Ted said I didn't realise that at the time uh, that there weren't any here you have to go about seven miles out before you find one really going shark fishing with a shotgun really um, uh, he didn't have a permit uh, to use the shotgun but he did admit to cutting it down uh, his, his uh, statement uh, let's see. Uh, uh, there we go. Um, oh yeah. Sorry. So I was just re just reading something else there. So that's uh, that, of course that's why that's why he parked it in Kilburn. So he was stay he was staying at a, he was staying at a mate's that night. That's why he was staying there. Oh, just found that little detail there. That's that's good. That's good. That's all useful. That explains why he parked the car in a different place. Right. Good. His statement said, uh, I, uh, Edward Volstrom Lewis, wish to make a statement. I wish to uh, write down that uh, 
I wish someone to write down what I say. I have been told that I need not say anything uh, unless I wish to do so. And whatever I say may be given in evidence. And he signed it. Uh, he said, I was out drinking most of the night. I was walking past part of Soho. I don't know uh, what it was. And there was a Chinese man talking to two police. They were t he was telling them he had been robbed. A few minutes later, I was walking down this lane thing, you know, when this girl said, are you looking for a girl? I said, yes, it depends. And she said, come in and I'll talk to you. So I went in and we started talk uh, and started to I started talking to her for a few minutes. Then she asked me, would I do sex with her? Sexy. Uh, uh, I said, yes. And she said, it's four pound for a short time and eight pound for all night. I gave her eight quid she took it back to the back room then she came out and asked me for another two pound uh, then she asked me to sign this book uh, as she walked out with the book and the two pound I saw the Chinese fellow walk in he was asking for his money back I knew more or less straight away that I'd been taken for a fool so when the girl came out I asked her for the money she said not to be silly she was coming out to meet me at the golden egg in, o in oxford street just around the corner i told her if she wasn't there i'd come back his statements all over the shop so i went home i got the gun of course you do if you're going to meet someone on a date you go out and go and pick up your shotgun uh i got the gun that one uh, and then i went back to the golden egg i waited for her for a few minutes until i was sure she wasn't coming so i went to the club there were two fellows outside arguing with a girl I pushed past her and said, I want to see the other girl. She said, get out, out or I'll call the police, which we've done before. Uh, I pulled the gun out of the bag. I saw the girl and I said, I want my money. She said, I'll get it. She walked into the back room and I followed her. I don't think the money was in the back room. I think they had to wait for someone to come up from downstairs or something. As I was waiting for the money, I was standing just inside the curtains. As I was waiting, I heard some men come in. One said, who's got the gun? As he said that, he came past the curtain and I think he got a shock as he was standing so close to the curtains. He bumped the gun as, I, as he walked in. He then had a look of surprise on his face and he grabbed for the gun. It went round in an arc as we twisted. As I pulled back, it went off. He reeled back a bit uh, and I never saw him after that. I don't know uh, what to do. I didn't know what to do, so I just asked for the money again. I then walked out. As I reached the footpath and then out to the road, somebody hit me over the head with a bottle. Then I started to run down the road. I think it was two or three men chasing me. I pulled this gun out, of, uh, out, out about three different times, trying to scare them. We had gone a few hundred yards. Uh, they were still chasing me, so I fired. I think that's it. Uh, and then he signed it. Uh, and it was witnessed uh, by Detective Sergeant Hopkins. Um, uh, w when he uh, was arrested, he was transferred uh, to a local prison. It doesn't say which one, so I'm guessing it's probably Pentonville because we're kind of north of the water, uh, where they said his behaviour was satisfactory, uh, but they said he made a concerted effort to try and hang himself in prison. Uh, he was transferred to King's College Hospital for 24 hours under observation and was later returned to prison. He said he wanted to hang himself as he intended to get, as he thought he was going to get a long prison sentence followed by deportation. Uh, he was assessed and declared fit to stand trial. So uh, at the trial, which was mentioned on 19th and 20th of February 1968, there were 18 witnesses in total. Um, he uh, Charge one... 
shooting with intent to uh, murder, he pleaded not guilty. Uh, and that one he was found not guilty on. Oh, I haven't written them here. What happened? Uh, charge two, wounding with intent to do grievous bodily harm. He pleaded not guilty and was found not guilty. Um, uh, charge of malicious wounding of one person. It, just, it didn't say who that one person was. I'm guessing it was Roy. He pleaded not guilty but was found guilty. Uh, charge four, wounding with intent to resist apprehension. He pleaded guilty and was found guilty. Charge five, malicious, malicious wounding of one person. Uh, he pleaded guilty uh, and was found not guilty on that one. And possess No, he was found guilty on that one. And then, uh, obviously, because he pleaded guilty. And then possessing, possessing a firearm with intent to endanger life. He pleaded not guilty uh, and was found not guilty. Uh, uh, the jury retired uh, for about an hour and a half. That's how long it took them. Uh, inside the file, it was quite interesting. Judge's notes, because obviously in there you get the judge's notes as well. And he his notes to himself were, did he shoot at Martinson, that's Roy Martinson, with intent to murder? Did he wound Martinson unlawfully with intent to do GBH? Or just unlawfully and recklessly, did he have in his possession a firearm with intent to endanger life? And even the judge himself wrote down three little notes to himself, which was drink, temper, motivation. So there you go. There you go. The story of uh, the story of Ted. This was going to this was going to be uh, one for Murder Mile, the book. But I, I thought I thought it'd make a nice a nice episode for this, especially as there was a file in the archives. So I thought I'll use make full use of that. Right. Let's do some uh, the quiz questions. Oh, Lord. Can't wait to open the window. Oh, open the windows and get some fresh air in. It's a hot day today. Hot day. Right. Question number one. What are the two streets which Rupert Court links? They are Rupert Street and Wardour Street. Question two. What's the name of the reflexology shop at 8 Rupert Court? It is called Step In. Question three. What was Ted's middle name? Robert question four what was Maureen's surname it was Chapman question five what was the name of the pub off Piccadilly Circus that the boys visited it was the Cockney Pride question six what was the name of the nightclub they tried and failed to get into it was the Whiskey A Go Go question seven what job did what job did Ted do to help him save money to come to England? He was a fisherman. Question eight. What city was Ted born in? It was Shanghai. Question nine. What is the name of the van hire company he worked for? It was Instant Van. And question ten. How many bottles of beer did he drink that night? roughly 15 so there we go there we go folks that's that hope you enjoyed that oh i haven't decided what next week's episode is yet i've I've researched them all i just haven't decided which one i want to do uh i always make a decision kind of uh late and what i've started doing now is i film the videos first that go out so don't forget if you like little videos go to the murder my youtube channel there's some nice little videos on there to help you kind of see the places and uh uh, and etc anyway hope you enjoyed that that was a uh that was murder mile 
Have yourself a good week. Stay safe and be good. Lots of love. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.